O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. When I say I'm honored to be here, it sounds a little bit like a uh, normal thing to say to start, but I want to tell you what that means to me, to say I'm honored to be here with you tonight. First reason is because of the friendship with some of your leaders, Sam, Ross, Daniel, a gift from God to me to know these men and to call them friends. It is also maybe something that you can understand. I'm stuck in Bethlehem. It is so good to be in a real church. <laughs> now, I love Bethlehem. But even going to the smallest campus that exists, South Campus, is just way too big for this guy. This is real church. And it is refreshing and a privilege to be here with you. You actually know each other. I've heard you get irritated at each other sometimes too. <laughs> that comes when you're family and close and a, a real church. I'm grateful for the seminary and school at Bethlehem that I get to be part of. Uh, small churches like us don't do that, but I've spent all my 60 and a few years in small community-sized churches and uh, I love that. So it's home uh, to be here with you and some other friends beyond these men whom I love. Well, so let me ask you, have you ever, uh, maybe you haven't, but I'm talking about myself at least, have you ever had an argument with a family member on a Sunday? Okay, just me. Was it before or after the service? I've had both. It just seems wrong. Just wrong. Something about the going and something about returning from should give us some kind of glow or holiness that avoids grouchiness and arguments for some period of time, you know, 30 minutes, maybe 24, that'd be great. Hasn't been my experience. Happened to a man that I know. He led in worship, though his wife on that day had decided not to attend. Still, he was content and he really enjoyed the time of worship and he loved encouraging those who were around him. And when it was done, he went home and this one thought was in his mind, I want to bless my wife. He walked in the door and as he did, it was clear that something was wrong. She had her arms folded across her chest. He's a bright guy. He knew he was in trouble. As he came in and began to take a breath to speak, she put her hands on her hips. And she said, you think you're so much better than me, don't you? 
He said nothing. And she pointed her finger at him like a weapon. You're a fool the way you acted in worship today. Yes, he was a bit enthusiastic, but the thought went through his mind. How does she know? She wasn't there. All the people who saw you were mocking you behind your back. Well, what would you do in that circumstance, at that time, right after the high of the delight of worshiping Yahweh with your friends? Actually, some of you are ahead of me. You know that I have stolen this story from the Bible. It happened in 2 Samuel, or recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 6. And if you would, we're going to be in two texts, three texts today actually. The anchor text has been read. We'll come back to that in the middle. It's going to be a sandwich. 2 Samuel chapter 6 tells a story. And I'm going to refer to a couple of verses in here. Took a little bit of liberty with the story. You should notice that too. Imagining some of the details. Probably not too far off. What I want you to see is a particular word that she used. Verse 20 of chapter 6 says, David returned to bless his household. Michal, the daughter of Saul, remember that, we're going to come back to that, came out to meet David and said, how the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michal, it was before Yahweh who chose me above your father, reference to Saul, and above all this house who appointed me as prince over Israel and the people of Yahweh and will celebrate before Yahweh. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this and I will be blessed. I'm sorry, I will be abased in your eyes but by the female servants of whom you've spoken, by them, I will be held in honor. I want you to notice what I didn't read. If you would look up in verse 16, just that one phrase that sets this up. She despised him in her heart. What do you do with that idea of being despised? Why do you think she reacted in, in that way? I'm going to suggest it had something to do with her own understanding of how a king should act. Now remember her father was Saul, head and shoulders above everybody else. Remember that Saul was a man who knew how to act like a king. He was regal and barren. He commanded a kind of presence. And maybe he was a bit pompous too. 
Maybe he was a bit full of himself and not full of God or his spirit. And she despised David at least for this because he wasn't acting like a king should act. And she knew how a king should act because she had expectations that were set by her family that she had grown up with. And her father saw that's a king. This fool that she ended up married to is not acting like a king. He had disappointed her, and for that, she despised him. Now, being despised was not new to David. His brothers despised him. He didn't end up like Joseph, his forefather, but he did get despised not only by his brothers, but on the same day he was despised, the same word shows up in the text, by Goliath, the Philistine, the champion who went out laughing at David just before he died. We don't know for sure. It's a historical connection, not a biblical connection. It's not wrong to use history. History and the best guesses of a number of people say that this psalm was written by David, Psalm 131, as a response to being despised by his wife. Guys, I want to see a, sh a, a, a raise of hands. How many of you go out and write poetry after your wife chews you out? <laughs> not me. Now, I asked Lynn not to come tonight. That's not quite true. <laughs> but if she was here, she would tell you that one of my terrible weaknesses is when we get into a disagreement too often on Sunday, after a high point or just before of worshiping with friends, I will argue until she sees how brilliantly right I am. I am, of course, brilliantly right. It just takes a half an hour to 45 minutes until she can understand. Because my heart gets tangled. I'm not able to allow her to despise me and think me wrong. By the way, God may actually be agreeing with her at that point. Only God knows. But I have this desire to get her to affirm me and a failure to, unlike David, not to be able to state my case and walk away and let it be. So David, probably, well, possibly after this issue, but if it wasn't this one, it was another. As we get into the psalm, we'll see that. His turn is all Yahweh. And by the way, I'm going to be using my translation all the way through with apologies to the ESV and the reader, but thank you. <laughs> but I hope your Bibles are open. Not proud my heart, not haughty my eyes, not concerned with things too great for me, but have stilled and quieted my soul like a weaned child, like a weaned child on its mother's lap is my soul within me. Oh, people of God, hope in Yahweh now 
and forevermore. As we look at this text tonight, Christians, this is a call to battle for hope in the middle of a world and relationships and situations at church, situations in politics, and everything else is assaulting you. God tells you, here's how to fight for hope. Here is the way to know joy and delight in God in the middle of a real, actual mess. And not yet Christians, because I'm going to assume that not everybody here has yet surrendered your life to Christ. At least I hope so. I hope you have friends here who feel eager to draw close because they want to see more. Tell me, show me, who is God? As they listen and watch God at work among you. So if you're one of those who are not yet a Christian, let me tell you what to do with this next, you said two hours, Sam? Kind of a long <laughs> service meeting. <laughs> this might be new news for you. That God offers you in Christ, I'll come back to that later too, God offers you in Christ a way that you are to do work to soothe your own soul. It will not be found in politics and it will not be found in being right. It will not be found in manipulating the opinions of others around you. It will be found in the lap of God. Amen. And I want to show you how to find that for the first time if you haven't yet discovered that. So here we go. Two points tonight. Does fear or faith lead to hope? That's the first point, and it's going to be anchored in this text that was read, Psalm 131. I want to pray for us and for me as we get started. Father, there isn't a person here who doesn't feel the reality of a messy world. Broken relationships, tangled relationships, failed expectations, disappointments with ourselves, and figuring out others' disappointments with us, failures in our families, failures at work, confusion over the distance that COVID has put between us and people we love so much, isolation. Lord, in all these things, I pray that you would show us a path through. How is it, Lord, that after 20 years of meditating on this psalm in particular, I haven't yet gotten all figured out. Lord, lead me further to meet you and have more delight and joy from you than I have yet discovered. I need that, Lord. You know I do. So all of us here are waiting for your spirit to teach us. Teach me, teach us. Show us your glory and a path in that's different than what the world tells us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So what does this song mean? If you are in the middle of a relational crisis, by the way, that relational crisis could be a sense of feeling alone by COVID. That's in a relational crisis. Or it could be somebody's opinion of you. Or it could be an argument that's going on. Or you could just be fed up with the politics. Any of those. What does it mean 
I want you to turn, if you weren't already, to this text in Psalm 131. So, as we walk through, you can see how this rolls out of the text. Now, this text was typically grouped with those that they sang on the way to Jerusalem on the three required holy days, holidays, pilgrimages. And the first words of the song proper is, O Yahweh. And I just want to stop there. I want us to feel this. Back to my own failures with my wife, Lynn, and with my kids. The tendency to stay engaged until either I prevail or we come to a compromise, but finally everybody's got a, an agreed opinion, preferably mine. <laughs> I am so challenged and instructed and delighted when I'm thinking clearly with David because his turn is O Yahweh. And if I'm right and about the connection between these two good, and if I'm not, it doesn't matter because something's bugging him, as we'll see. And the easy thing when it's bugging us is either to hide, isolation, and just foment inside, circle the drain, or to wrestle with the person in some active way, or the group of people. David says, cut it out. This is where God wants to meet you. Did you realize that your anxiety is God's gift in the sense of 1 Peter, gift of suffering? It is God's gift to you and to me to meet with him in a new way and see that he is sufficient. Oh, Yahweh. That's a turn away from circling the drain or tangled with people. So what's the next move? The Hebrew syntax is not normative here. We can put it in English syntax, but I, I love the Hebrew syntax because it helps us hear the punch of this. Not proud. Each one of these three phrases that we're going to look at now begins with the word not. And they all say the same thing. Not proud my heart. I can't always say that in the middle of an argument, in the middle of a hurt, in the middle of anxiety. Not proud my heart. Not haughty my eyes. Oh, what does that mean? It means I'm not just thinking about who I am. They did this to me. I thought I could trust them. I had this expectation, and they didn't meet it. I think that's what happened in part, at least, for Bikaf. An expectation of what a king should do, because she grew up with one. And this little run, short, too short to be a king, too effervescent to be a king. Kings are stately. Her expectations were not met. Maybe there's other things, too. Who does she think she is? I'm the king. I'm the one who loves God, not Saul, but 
except for one phrase in his response to her, which wasn't exactly attacking, but stating the fact, and then moved on. David just let that go. Not proud of my heart, not haughty my eyes. And it's that last phrase, this next phrase, that really catches me. David says, not occupied, not concerned with things too great for me. Now think about this for a minute. David is a king. Or depending on when he wrote this, an anointed king. But, go with me here, anointed by God, declared to be king, sitting or not. What's too great for a king to do? Kings can start wars, and they can end them. Kings can tax people, or they can give money away. In fact, on this day, if that's the day when it happened, David gave away to everybody food at the end to bring the ark into Jerusalem. Kings can put individuals to death. They are the judge. In fact, go through the whole category of things. It's not clear to me that there's anything that is too great and wonderful for a king to do. I'm going to make a suggestion. Put this under Rick's opinion as opposed to Bible necessary. All right? Got that filed right? Rick's opinion is there's only one thing that's too great or wonderful for a king to do. Control someone else's opinion. And that's too great and wonderful for you and me to do. And so whether or not that's exactly what's on David's mind, it is certainly covered by not proud my heart, not hot in my eyes, not concerned with things too great and wonderful for me. It is covered trying to control other people's opinions. And if this did happen, after we call pronounced him despised by your wife. His soul was entangled by going to Yahweh. Oh, Yahweh, a turn to God. And then in that turn to God, the next turn was, it's not about me. Can I take by that? Is it fair to say that the alternate was certainly a possibility at that point, not being humble. It's got to be, that's why he's saying the not so prominently, even though it was a normal way for Hebrew grammar to write it. He's writing three phrases to say the same thing. That's an emphasis. And it's so easy. Make it about me. So a turn to God, a turn away from pride. What's the next thing we should do when our heart is tangled, when people are coming at us, when we're despised, when we should not be, or at least we're convinced we should not be? David says something absolutely delightful. <laughs> I have stilled and quieted my soul. 
like a weaned child, <coughs> like a weaned child on his mother's lap. That's what my soul is like. Now, I'm old, but I still have my memory. <laughs> and I remember when our kids were the age of most of the kids that just got dismissed. <laughs> But I remember the age just before that when they were still dependent upon mom for all their food. It's always a danger when we go to somebody's house that our non-weaned children would rip our, my wife's clothes off when it was feeding time. They would cry and pull. Now, you love a kid regardless. But parents, do you remember the last time, and it happens, do you remember the last time your kids wanted nothing from you and they came up and just sat on your lap and tucked their head onto your chest just so they could listen to your heartbeat and they wanted nothing? That happens. I know some of the rough days make you wonder if it'll ever happen. Hey, you know what? It keeps happening until they're 25. Every once in a while. It kind of disappears between 13 and 19, but it comes back. <laughs> that is just such a wonderful delight for parents. Now, turn that around. And here's what David's saying. I stilled and quieted my soul like a weaned child that wants absolutely nothing from mom except to go and sit on her lap and put my head on her chest and listen to her heartbeat and just cuddle in. That's what I want from you right now, God. Now there's two really critical things to catch about this. Critical thing one. He's not asking for anything. I would be typically like, fix my wife. <laughs> fix means let her have my opinion. Straighten out my kid. Make COVID go away. Give us sane politicians, even if I don't agree with them. Give me a sane one. Give me one with integrity. Heal my neighborhood. Heal my church. You know there's some crazy people in churches? <laughs> I'm one of them. <laughs> wanting nothing includes not wanting other people fixed. Mm. Second thing. If you read that text too quickly, you would pray like this. Father, I learned tonight from Psalm 131 that I need to come to you and ask you to settle down my heart. Wrong. I am not asking you to pray, Lord, settle down my heart. Not on this psalm. Find another text. Here's what this one says. I have stilled... I have... I have stilled and quieted my soul. Wow. God wants you to do a lot of work. You're going to want to say, Lord, still my soul. Again, find another verse. 
But this one calls you to be the adult, to be the maturing, no longer we are now wean, no longer demanding, to be the maturing child, and you to be responsible for stilling and quieting your nephesh, your soul. Don't you like when your kids can go brush their own teeth? Like, get ready for bed. They come back with their pajamas on and their teeth brushed. I remember that day. It was marvelous. God wants you to learn to still quiet your soul and come sit in his lap. That's a marvelous delight to him. Do you know he delights in you? He wants it for you, but he enjoys it. Because when you learn that, you gain so much more from him. So three moves so far. Take it to God. Nowhere else. Don't go out to your favorite website. Don't numb your brain with YouTube. Oh, Yahweh. Second, humble yourself before God. Not proud of my heart. Not making it about me. Three, learn to still and quiet your own soul. Like one who wants nothing from God but God. Lastly, fourth movement, short text, four movements, three verses only. What does he say? Oh, people of God, would you allow that change in translation? Literally, Israel. But let's take Israel there in the church now and say, oh, people of God, hope in Yahweh. Now, we could go on and say, in eternity, that would be great. This could be a eschatological, think about Jesus' return kind of text. And there are texts like that, praise God. This one actually starts now. Hope in Yahweh, now. Now, don't misunderstand this. If you take verse 4 out of context, it's a hopeless verse. Because now you just say, okay, i got to hope in God. No. It's a movement from oh Yahweh to not being proud to wanting nothing from God but to sit in his lap and listen to his heartbeat. Those three things have to happen. He says, now hope in God. Now you receive hope. It's a command to you, yes. But this is what flows out of doing these things. You want hope? Do this. Right now, you'll get it. And as long as you keep living in this way, speaking as one who keeps failing to live this way, has to relearn this every day, and if you learn it in one situation, God says, hey, come on, let's go to another one. You never finish, but you keep doing it. And then no hope now and forevermore. Amen. Call on God. In humility, calm your soul, no hope. Seek God, trust God, enjoy God, delight in God. That's what hope is. Delighting in God. Now, why again? Second idea today. Why again did we call despise David? I want you to turn to 1 John chapter 4. And we're going to apply this together. Flying is always dangerous, but I leave as soon as I'm done. <laughs> Thank you. 
David was despised by his enemies and by his family, so he's getting used to it. Why did they despise him? Well, because he wasn't meeting their expectations or he was in the way of what they wanted to accomplish. That's usually the reason we despise people. You despise people. I despise people. It's always a sin. Notice the word judge. Uh, this is free. It's not my sermon. But notice the word judge in the New Testament. You are required to judge and you're told not to judge. How could that be? Well, two different words should be understood. When you're told not to judge, you're not to despise. When you're told you are to judge, you are to discern. So we just need to understand the context of the author and the, the domain, the range of ways and ideas you could express. So you're never to despise, you always are to discern. Good. So, because you're always going to be at some point disappointing people around you who had expectations of you, or in the way of what they want to accomplish, I promise you, you will be despised. Probably before 24 hours goes by. What can you do? You're going to fall apart? How do you deal with it? But let me push it one more. How do you deal with the people that do this to you? How have you dealt with the people who do this to you? How have you dealt with the people in your church that do this to you? 1 John chapter 4, starting at verse 13. Long paragraph. Read along in your text if you can see it, or just listen. By this, we know that we abide in him and in us because he's given us the spirit. So that's his thesis. Now, how does it work out? If you have a spirit, you're abiding in him. How, what does that look like? We know that we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. So here is why we're gathered together. Here's what it means to be the church. We're the ones who know the reality of this truth. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he's in God. And so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. Isn't that great? He says, this is who you are. It's how you define yourself. And you're the ones I'm talking to. And then he's going to tell us something we all want to clap for. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God in him. We're sounding pretty good so far. By this is love perfected within us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. Look, there is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear. For fear is to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. I'll come back to that verse 18, but you know, so far we're doing pretty good. We're saying, yeah, that, that's right, John, I'm, I'm good with this. If anyone says, verse 20, I love God and hates his brother, 
he is a liar. Now, John is sticking the knife in. It's hard. It was pretty good so far. Wait a minute. What do you mean, liar? For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Cannot. That doesn't do so well. Cannot. In every relationship you have, in your family, in your church, at work, you're going to have to decide if fear or faith governs that. Now that's the first idea. God's primarily talking about our relationship with Him, but I'm going to say all relationships are derivative from the relationship God has to us. We reflect a relationship back to Him, good or bad, and then we have relationships with other people that are like that. Hmm. In fact, they can never exceed that. God defines relationship. Yeah. And so it's fine when we're talking about perfect love drives out fear, when we're talking about us and God, as we know Him and Jesus Christ, we're good, that's great. But now wait a minute, now I'm saying, and John is about to say, the perfect love cast out fear means in your interpersonal relationships first in the church even. I'm going to say it also, that wasn't John's concern, but also applies to your family and every other relationship you have. And what is at stake on this idea of living out of faith that God is love and not fear that I'm isolated from that in some way? It's verse 20. If you say you love God, here's how you can know if you're really living out of faith in your love to God. Here's the test. It's not, we didn't ask for a test, did we? And yet he's going to give it. It's the test. If you love your brother or sister, can I add that? Whom you can see, then you love God. But if you don't, then you don't love the God you cannot see. Uh, here's the principle. It's easy to love at a distance. Mm -hmm. Everybody loves the internet. Get in that car. Dial up in your phone exactly the preacher you like and exactly the well-mastered songs that you love the most, sung by people who have never irritated you in your life. <laughs> Preached by a perfect preacher, at least in relationship to you. All of my time in church has been in small, community-sized churches. Praise God for that, because in those churches, you got to figure out your relationships. And the whole idea of are we, are we bound by fear of faith shows up in those relationships. And if you can't deal with the failed expectations or the anxiety that builds in a relationship that's tough, God actually says it's not just that you can find hope if you go to him. It's that if you can't do that, You don't know me. It's easy to love the internet. It's easy to love the church as a global concept. But John says, you've got to love your irritating brother and sister when they're irritating. Mm -hmm. I went to a radiologist this week. 
and when I was in there talking, I came in and, and the lights were dim and he says, oh, we're not people of the dark, we're people of the light. So he turns them on. I said, you grew up in the church, didn't you? Yeah, how did you know? I said, but I left the church, really? I said, well, you just quoted the Bible. I said, that was kind of a loose quote from John chapter three. Really? He said, I didn't know that. He said, I got so fed up with the church I just had to leave. He said, I'm trying to figure that out now. He said, I kind of circled back around. He's my son's age, so he's in his mid-30s. Over and over, I keep meeting people who don't like the real church and therefore reject God. Right after Sam called me and asked me to preach, God gave me an opportunity to spill a cup of coffee onto my Dell laptop. Oh. It was Sam's fault. <laughs> <laughs> now, one of the favorite things that we all have in our lives is calling technical support. Don't you love that as much as I do? <laughs> I talked to Justin. Dell Corporation. He actually lived in Oklahoma. I know where that is. I can find it in a map, unlike quite a few of the folks that talked to me when I called Dell. <laughs> we spent 20 minutes determining that my laptop was dead. And an hour talking about the church. I hope if the guy who's listening in, you know, afterwards, you know, we're recording all these so we can give you better service because we're in trouble. But his dad was a pastor, and his church was all about only rules. And he felt hated, and his dad felt always defensive, and they quit loving the church, his family. And him too. And he said, I'm so glad we started talking today because I gotta figure this out. I would say half, it's probably understated, of the people I talk to in church and out of the church find themselves really, if they're honest, hating the church. Hmm. And I think it's because we don't understand the, can I use this term, Christian hedonism, that is at the center of Psalm 131, that sense of pursuing the light in God in a very particular, counterintuitive way. And unless we get that, we can't understand what John is saying. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. Somehow we want to be able to have God, but not his church. Do you know the gospel? Sam's your pastor, Ross is your pastor, Daniel's your pastor, you know the gospel. But let me tell it to you in a particular biblical metaphor. It's that God is going to marry the church. That's the gospel. We have been a disobedient, unfaithful bride from, you want to call it day one or day six? The whole of the Old Testament is calling us 
idolaters and adulterers, using those interchangeably, and yet God's saying, I am going to pursue you and woo you in the desert. Oh, Hosea 2.14. Until Jesus comes, and when John sees Jesus, he introduces him this way. He says, he's the bridegroom, and I'm the friend of the bridegroom. Hmm. The friend of the bridegroom hears his voice and he rejoices. Because that means, that means the marriage is coming soon. We've all had friends who are getting married. Can you imagine saying to your friend, I'd love to come to the wedding. I really would. We're buds. But your wife, your fiance, she is so ugly. I just can't do it. I just can't do it. Love you, brother, but your wife really, really ugly. It might do something to hurt your friendship. Are you going to tell Jesus that the bride, that the bride price he paid was his own life, is too ugly for you to love? Yes. At some point, we all do it. But that means we're failing to understand Psalm 131 and we're not hearing the threat of 1 John 4. I started by saying I could talk about the anxiousness of COVID and that would be profitable. The anxious times provided by politics and we're all tired of that. Grieved by the culture wars and the race issues. All of those would be appropriate. But today, here at All Peoples, there's one closer to home, isn't there? When Sam first asked me to talk, there was going to be a meeting tonight. Some of you know more, some of you know less, but you've gotten two letters from your elders about those meetings. In all of our minds, we have ideas and wonderments, and we're going to wait to hear from the elders. They've said that, that meeting isn't going to happen. Not tonight, but they've said they're going to pursue the issue according to Matthew 18 and take it to the next step among the pastor's elders. They'll get back to you. They promised that. They'll get back to you. That makes you anxious. Some of you will be hurt that accusations were brought against a man that you love. Others of you might say it's about time. He's irritating. Sam irritated me once. I'll tell you that story another time. <laughs> Art, no, I'm tempted to. But would you take the seriousness of that? The seriousness of what's going on in your heart? And will you choose to love this church mm -hmm. today mm -hmm. like Jesus does mm -hmm. giving you some equipment Psalm 131 mm -hmm. I've given you the challenge 1 John 4 mm -hmm. and God's provided the opportunity mm -hmm. in the charges brought against Sam now wow. where do you go mm -hmm. I think you'll follow God's spirit mm -hmm. I think you can love the people who bring the charges, and you can love Sam. Mm -hmm. 
and you can love your pastors and you can love each other no matter what your indeterminate opinion is because most of you don't even know what churches are mm -hmm. and as you find out through gossip and you find out directly to the elders pastors be in prayer I was a pastor for more than 35 years. On a regular basis, someone had a deep grievance against me. I'm sure half of them were right. The question is, what needs to be done to rectify it? And the other half were just wrong because they didn't meet expectations or I caused them anxiety by getting in the way of what they wanted. I don't know. And sometimes women helped me see what was right about what they were saying, even if they were over-amped up about it. It's normal. Because I'm almost certain every one of you is a sinner. And there's a sinner standing up here before you, saved by grace. That's the gospel. And if you're here having been wounded by a church, don't move. Don't leave in anxiety. Look at it as an opportunity to soothe your soul. Because I know these three men to be men who love you and love God. I don't know them to be sinless. I know them to be men who are eager to show you Jesus and to have more of him themselves. So don't be afraid. Do what comes instead by Psalm 131 and be part of the solution. By not letting a fire of anxiety run through the church, but let a fire of delight in Christ that makes you confident that you will deal with whatever issue he's dealt with by God's strength that he supplies in Christ Jesus. And if you don't know him yet, oh, watch. Watch what God's going to do. Stick around and see him work to show off his glory. Father, I pray for these friends of mine who are faced with an anxiety situation in the middle of a world that's going crazy. What will you do to show off your glory in Christ? I'm eager to see it. I'm also confident in you that you love not just the church, but you love all people's church. Now stand by them and show your glory. Discipline, support, encourage, build up, rebuke, and show off the glory of Christ. That the gospel works. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.